Art and activism, I drew the parallel earlier, they're very important things. What they are at the end of the day are autonomous, critical citizens on both sides. And I think that the working classes and those people that are othered and, and, and been dispossessed systemically over, over generations are struggling to get to that. We're not suddenly trying to re regain a golden era from the art schools in the 60s or the post-war you know, state, yeah, welfare right. state. We're not trying to reclaim that. That was just a step forward in a longer, longer struggle. So the most important thing that I would like you to hear in today's episode is that Arts Emergency is an amazing organisation who you should check out more about and you should go and support them in whatever way you can. Go over to arts-emergency.org and find out all about them. I'm telling you this now specifically because... Some of you may not like the sound quality in this episode and you may not listen to it fully and that is your right and your choice but because that organisation is really, really important and what Neil says in this conversation is really, really great I would suggest that you try, give it a try and know a couple of things it starts off better but then it gets worse but then it gets better again for a while at the end and that the sound in the background is kind of like the sea, so you can get used to it, but then when it suddenly crashes with waves, that will disturb you. Keep those kind of things in mind. The thing with recording people in location is you just can't control what that location's going to do. I try to have the mantra of you get what you get and you don't get upset about getting better acquainted. I do like background sound. I do like the sound of the room. So I do like elements of that in today's episode, but sometimes there's just too many conversations nearby and that's a little bit distracting but bear with it and get used to it it really is worth listening to this conversation well i think it's primarily because i'm an activist not an artist but i draw strong parallels between the two pursuits in terms of their social impact you know it all involves reimagining constructing new identities and building and communicating with people hello i'm dave i'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together I need to get better Please make me better I want to get better 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 acquainted with you Today we're getting better acquainted with Neil. Hello Neil. Hello Dave. <laughs> We're recording in the ca Candid Cafe in Angel to explain uh, the background sound for background sound fans and uh, people who aren't such fans of background sound, just to let you know what's going on. It's quite an empty room, there's some music in the... Uh, I'm recording furthest away from the speakers that I can, so that hopefully I will not be done for copyright infringement. As for other people's conversations, they're not copyright protected, but hopefully they won't be too loud in the background. But it's, today it's going to be in my hand, so uh, apologies if it gets really in your face. Here. I'm worried that people are finding out about this spot and they're, they're populating it, because it's normally dead quiet. I know, I know. Well, that's the thing. Any, anywhere you find in London that's nice, uh, quickly, we'll, we'll have other people in it. That's yeah, some of whom are wearing suits. 
welcome to the show. Uh, the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? I think I know you because originally you supported my charity through Stand Up Tragedy. Uh, I contacted you about doing a, uh, a, a fundraising Christmas gig. 2012 or That's something, right. I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, Tragic Christmas, yeah, which was a... really long time ago. Uh, yeah, it was. And it was, I mean, it was like the second year of doing Stand Up Tragedy and I wanted to try and give something back. And uh, your charity, Arts Emergency, is something I really believe in and, and, and want to support as much as I can. Uh, so we put together a, a Tragic Christmas gig, which I think was one of the best... The, the content at least was one of the best nights we've ever Tragic done Tragic Christmas yeah. as well it was a brilliantly uh, poignant event right really it was there was a lot of like there was a lot of tragedy uh, but also a lot of uh, light moments as well you know because of the light in the darkness kind of thing and yeah it was a great night it was emotionally gruelling for me afterwards I realised like I thought oh yeah I know what I'll do I'll compare an evening by talking about all of my worst memories um, yeah. which was fun at the time I mean it was cathartic at the time but uh, a couple of days later I was like oh hang on Backdraft. Yeah, now I've got that. a feel yeah. of this again. Um, but it was great to, great to do it for you guys and great that we, we managed to raise raise uh, raise some cash for you. I wish wish we'd have raised more. Um, and I think, you know... 6.5 million pounds, Dave. It was really good. <laughs> <laughs> right. I won't do jokes, I'm sorry. No, it was, it was a good joke. <laughs> it's I was a good just, joke. Yeah. I'm a dad now, so yeah, well, like bad jokes and quips and that sort of thing well, the, the thing we do, yeah I mean it was, a, it was a funny joke for me I was just worried that people were going to think that I was the kind of person who could manage to raise uh, well, 6.5 million people think we're the kind of charity that has that sort of money <laughs> yeah well, right it's good for both Conceit. of us it's an artistic <laughs> Yeah, yeah. but you came down for the night as well, which was great. I did, and, and yeah. you sort of said, "Oh, it's good to be out. I don't get out very much at the time." I think. Yeah, I think that you... was before I was a dad. Right. And yeah. It's much worse now. Right. It's my first time out of the house for around nine months. No, it's not. But yeah, yeah it's uh, it's hard work it's running a charity. It's it's like having another baby, and um, yeah, it takes up all your time and energy, especially starting it. Um, which we're only just in a position now where we can say it's a going concern. And um, I've actually, yeah, I can actually take a holiday this year where I don't have to leave my phone on that's, for a that's, week. That's an amazing place to get hardcore, to, I think. Yeah. Especially like, you know, yeah, the amount of work that goes into Arts Emergency. I guess we'll, we'll probably touch on that a little bit as we go on. Um, but yeah, that's how we know each other. We met each other then. I think I've been into, I've been into your offices at Arts Emergency. You have, yeah. Into, uh, see, see where all the magic takes place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Most of the mess is Josie's, not mine. Right. <clears throat> and we're still in the same small office. Well, so. Right. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, I don't know. I like, I like that office. I like the, uh, the way that it feels like a, a humans live in it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you yeah. know, it actually reflects the people who, who work there, which yeah. is quite rare for an office. In I this suppose so. Lot. It's like what would happen if you put two fairly creative humans in a room without any bin for three years <laughs> it's, a, it's, like, it's a proper exhibit I'm not, I'm not even joking we don't have a bin we've, we've never really had a bin right you know, it's just an ongoing concern the second question I ask everybody is what do you do now so I guess I guess we've started to touch on that I still run Arts Emergency yep. except unlike when I oh know when, when, when we first met I'd already quit my job so it was my proper job, but I wasn't being paid. I'm now paid as director. And I've got one, two, three, four colleagues at the moment in varying degrees of ability to employ them on proper conditions. So we have sort of one person for half a day every day, one person for one day a week, 
one person full time and one person who does our podcast for we pay her a day a month so it's a kind of but it's four colleagues which is a phenomenal situation to be in considering I've done everything up until last year really right. um, on my own and yeah I'm, I'm, it's all proper now I suppose you'd say yeah yeah I mean and I guess the 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 thing that people the thing that off, has probably brought a lot of people to arts emergency to being aware of arts emergency is the fact that you're partnered with Josie Long right yeah I think that really helped us at yeah. the start it was uh, well we both looked at who we knew and between us so I was an activist primarily with right. more and more jobs um, and obviously Josie's an award winning comedian and we just seem to know like a shitload of people right. of our age range who were like basically going to be the lefty London establishment within a few years we felt very lucky about it and um, Josie is just like a moth to the flame people have, the initial few hundred people were all really a result of her, her sort of going out and talking about it one by one at her shows, in press interviews, she'd talk about it, um, and it was my job to make sure there was no bullshit, you know, and really deliver on what she was going out there telling people. Right. Um, so it's a very big idea, but a very complex one. And um, yeah, we've never really been a celebrity organisation, you no. know, we've never really used it in any sort of way that you could draw a correlation with other charities. Um, but we've got, you know, we've got hundreds of people you would say are famous people in our network now right and, um, we won't even it's guaranteed to have someone somebody really loves and respects as an artist uh, or journalist or author and um, yeah I think that's that's kind of our secret power is we, we have this this amazing network well yeah I mean that's the interesting thing I mean one of the things that you guys sort of talk about in what you do is this idea of kind of um, sharing the privilege that we have and like giving it to people to help them come up from backgrounds that, that would not necessarily have access to that privilege and it's interesting like you yeah. talk about having an alternative old boys network right uh, and it's interesting when you're saying that you, you guys looked around and went hang on we know the future uh, liberal lefty yeah uh, that was it yeah. and we simply uh, we, well I got 50 people together at a flagship academy school where we rented a classroom this was back in late 20 well mid 2011 uh, put a picture of the Bullingdon club up on the wall and we just listed out every privilege we could think that those guys had I took that list away and I'm still pretty much going through it trying to reificate every privilege that they had for the, the young people we support right you know people from our kinds of backgrounds people from more even more challenging backgrounds um, you know non-traditional pathways into education and, and creative life broadly um, it was a long list the only one we can't replicate is money right uh, none of us have independent wealth <laughs> uh, but every other thing from contacts in different areas to advice to getting work through someone that knows someone or internships that are paid through knowing the boss of a certain company or publishing house has uh, really happened and then um, yeah it's a real alternative Old right. Boy Network. I don't call it the Alternative Old Boy Network because it proved slightly problematic. Uh, in that I got several emails from people that said, I'm an old girl, can I be part of it? And I think the alternative bit tends to get lost in right. translation when it goes out there into the ether. Um, but it certainly works like an alternative to these networks. Um, right. And it's an interesting thing as an artist, like, uh, coming up. I mean, I don't know if I'm up anyway at this moment in time, but trying to come up. Something that kind of became clear to me is a, a few years ago is that 
you don't need to have been to Oxford and Cambridge, but you do need to make friends with someone who's been to Oxford and Cambridge in order to access certain elements of the arts. 100%. And, yeah. and, and, and as I've done that, I mean, accidentally, you know, just because I happen to make friends with people and they happen to have been to Oxford and Cambridge, although how accidental it can be, I mean, I'm still white, I'm still middle class, you know, I'm still in well, London, all Everyone's of these things. Everyone's got a certain sort of privilege, even the students we have sign up we've got quite strict thorough eligibility criteria but of course they're going to have on the intersection they're going to have benefits that another won't have and, and vice versa right. um, but yeah that whole it's true yeah. that you do kind of you need to know people from networks of privilege in order to build a bit of traction for yourself absolutely um, it is who you know and what yeah. I like about Arts Emergency is you're kind of de- de- democratising the who you know bit well I think it's primarily because I'm an activist not an artist but I draw strong parallels between the two pursuits in terms of their social impact you know it all involves reimagining constructing new identities and building and communicating with people and I think I just don't care about the contacts that we have person in a personal sense it's of no benefit to me to have some snazzy famous person in my own network. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I don't, not in a, a mood way, but I don't really care. I'm purely interested in, in shaking them down, if that makes sense, in a positive way. So we don't point the finger, but we do want to open the door and say, look, we're very practical. We've got all these systems in place and processes, evaluated actual charitable services with outcomes that we can show you. And all we need from you is your privilege. And don't get upset that we're using the word privilege and suggesting you have any, because a lot of people don't like that. They don't, do they? We all do. And we just want you to recognise it and perhaps allow us to help you uh, pass it on in any way. And 100% of the time, it's always really just access for a young person. Getting to meet somebody that's doing something they want to do is a very powerful thing and to do it on a one-to-one basis is even more powerful so no group we don't get a group of kids and we go oh you're all disadvantaged let's get 500 of you because somebody's funded 500 visits to a place and we'll take you to the guardian and 500 of you can sit and watch poly toy and be all in chatting away about journalism that's great there's a lot of things like that but when we do it we ensure there's one two three young people when they go and have lunch with someone like that and they go with that person on a visit with their mentor and it's a real experience there's no convoluted element here we've simply used our contacts that we've built as a charity or as individuals Josie and I send an email to someone as we would for someone else and go look this young person's interested in journalism or, or TV whatever it is would you like to let them in for an afternoon and that's such a simple thing we do a whole load of other things around that through mentoring goal identification and supporting relationships over a year and beyond so that a young person can really make the most of it but it's that simple act that you and I probably benefited from too I certainly did I, I, I went to a fairly shit state school in a grammar school catchment area in North Kent and it was only through mixing with people at the grammar school that I actually started to recognise that I had any sort of intellect at all and that's not I'm not denigrating or, or generalising about other people's experiences but my education period up to that that period in my life in sort of mid-teens was horrendous I hated school I didn't engage I passed exams because I had really good memory but it wasn't an enriching experience it's more of an exercise in survival and kind of wait to pick one of three jobs you know army load the van or drive the van kind of stuff 
and I won't say where I'm from, but obviously I'm from down the road from Josie, so it's, it is North Kent, South London, kind of areas. Um, but by mixing with people from that slightly better off background, or people that weren't even better off, because my wife went to a grammar school, certainly wasn't better off as a fact we were working class families, but you know, they just had a different take, a bit more space. And that was really important for me. And then I went to university because of that, really, because of realising that, frankly, I was a bit smarter than a lot of the boys that were at the grammar school. I found it quite, you know, I was going out with girls from the grammar school and my whole peer group. So it changed, and it changed my outlook. Right. And that stuck with me all the way through to my ripe old age of 35 now. And now I find myself surrounded by people that have been to Oxford and Cambridge. And again, it is true of myself, I say this with modesty, but they are no smarter or more capable or more articulate than I am. They've been given the tools and the space, and that's not their fault and it's not to point the finger. So I just really passionately believe that by going out and finding other young people that will benefit far more than I would personally, at an age where I wish I'd had it. That was Josie and I both, both agreed that as soon as sort of I had the idea of this network, it was obvious we'd all wanted that to exist when we were younger because it would have been a powerful, useful thing. Right. But, yeah, by giving them, young people, that kind of opportunity and supporting them to try and make the most of it because, actually, the biggest barrier is often internal. So you can give them all the contacts in the world, but you need to make sure they know what to do with them, they've got an idea of what they want to do in their, their future, be that exploring all the options, which is beautiful when that happens, or be it something specific performative art practice or, or some kind of career in academia if you give them that opportunity and then you give them the support over a long period of time which, so our first group of students our first eight will be graduating this year and I think about four or five of them are still in touch right. one young lady's definitely going to come onto our board as soon as we're ready to as soon as we have a proper board not to say my board's not proper but as soon as we've got all those necessary functions of an institution in place which we have to do as a charity we may not want to but we have to do them in order to carry out the work right and the, the slightly subversive elements of our work that come out as a product of what we do can't be uh, sanitized by by um, bureaucracy and, and we do have to be an institution but once we're functioning like a normal institution we're going to populate the board with young people i'd like my job to go to someone from that first group and maybe not straight away because i don't know what else i do with my life now but you know 10 15 years time um, it would be nice to see this whole thing become a real network. Yeah. And, um, well, you you really know you built something when you can step away from being in charge of yeah. it and it still carries on. That's right? it. That That's very much it. The holy grail. Yeah. And we're getting there. We've got a few a few of the young people donate already. We've got a really amazing student society in Manchester that was completely autonomous, sprung out of nowhere. Managed to get sociology reintroduced to a local state school through pupil demand, having run little mentoring workshops at this school about sociology as a subject. And this is all happening organically. And it's, yeah, we're, we're halfway there. We've got young people that have been mentored that want to mentor. Um, I believe last week's mentor session, which was Caris's first, who's my service manager now, uh, we had one of our students there training to be a mentor. I got an email, one of them was there from someone else that said, this young lady had said she was one of our first mentees. That's great. That's, um, yeah, that's vindication. It lets me off the hook as well, because it's an all-consuming, I'm a vessel. I've got my personal life, my family, and I'm quite happy in that. And then I've got my working life, which is just a, a, an absolute torrent of demands. 
exams, difficult tasks, bureaucracy, impossible tasks as well. Like trying to fund the bloody thing is just, you wouldn't believe. Well, you would. You're a performer. You've gone to Edinburgh. And, yeah, I've know. got some idea of the kind of stuff that you face, but only some idea. And that's and that that makes me have a lot a lot of respect for what you do. You know? It's not respect. It's literally I mean, pure dogmatism. <laughs> it's just not just dogged pursuit of, of getting to this point where it's self-sustaining it's perfectly legitimate but also does all these other extra wonderful things and, and to have that freedom you can't just take a lot of money from one rich person or one institution that's rich or the government because they'll have their own aims and they'll pay you as a charity to deliver those aims there's nothing wrong with that per se i don't want to generalize but we want to be 100 percent democratically funded so that we're able to react to things we're able to call things out like fees going up or unpaid internships which both of which we've been fairly quiet on we implicitly challenge those things through our action but actually as we get bigger and the students we've supported get older and meet these new barriers we want to start calling it out and if we take money from creative industries or universities and that becomes quite difficult to do and we start to make compromises so yeah funding it in terms of impossible tasks still can't believe we do it we've got about 800 monthly donors and obviously we lose a few each month and we add a few each month right um, i mean i used to donate and then i went freelance and had to stop well that's uh, a great point you know the people that support us generally are not the wealthy people at the top of the tree they are people that can least afford to support something like this but most recognize the value of it and that's a very powerful thing if charities are not set up for social change charities are set up to save lives or they're set up to have immediate impact so we are a charity but we also have a very clear remit to create social change in a very peaceful kind way but by dissolving and embracing absorbing these networks of privilege and then for sort of democracy and passing that out and I think that we're able to to do that because we're harnessing support from people that actually understand the value not people that are obliged to do it for some some ethical reason or some press reason most of the people that support us almost in an entirety recognize that it would have benefited them or that they have benefited from a different value system and that's how you make change and it will take years it'll be long my job's to keep it going arts emergency <laughs> so that when it you know 50 years time or whatever if it's still required it's not some huge bureaucracy with no built-in obsolescence it's something that's adapted and changed and is is constantly basically a factory a social machine churning out good things churning out a little bit of equity um, for people that will use it although in the, it's interesting isn't it like the the continue the, the growth of, of, of arts emergency the continuation of arts emergency almost is kind of something that in a way should like if arts, if, if we really change society we, then then we wouldn't need arts emergency exactly. Um, so it would disappear ultimately right because I mean it's about the emergency that we are in right yeah. and it, you hope that this emergency stops being an emergency but I think it's interesting when you look back through history like recent history like arts emergency came out of like the, the current austerity measures but we've been in a state of emergency quote unquote around emergency for, 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 for 
for generations to a certain extent. Well, it's called the struggle. It's part right, of the struggle. Right, right. This is not something that suddenly happened, right? This was a response to a particular set of circumstances, a, a toxic kind of mix of things at a particular time that's still ongoing and frankly getting worse. But actually, what 17th century and 18th century, John Clare, you know, name me anyone else from, from the canon, or, right. you know, there's been an issue with this all the way along. And art, art and activism, I drew the parallel earlier, they're very important things. What they are at the end of the day are autonomous, critical citizens on both sides. And I think that the working classes and those people that are othered and, and, and been dispossessed systemically over, over generations struggling to get to that we're not suddenly trying to re regain a golden era from the art schools in the 60s or the post-war you know state yeah, welfare right. state we're not trying to reclaim that that was just a step forward in a longer longer struggle right so i think that you know we're doing our little bit of it we're doing it but hopefully you know i i someone like william morris and that kind of ethos very much we're a continuation of that but right. we're not we're not aping it we're just simply recognizing that we're part of that. We're part of the autodidactal movement, the Wesleyan priests, everything that went back to original schooling. It's not like it was given to people freely. It's not like public schooling was introduced or the weekend was introduced freely. And I, I see what we're doing is very much part of that ongoing struggle. We're just going at it from a different angle. Right. You know, we're just trying to be very positive and saying, look, we've all got something to offer. We've all got, as, as Emma Goldman would say, we've all got a right to beautiful, radiant things, freedom of, and self-expression. And, you, you know, you look at the world around you now, look at what's happened in the news the last few days. Right. We don't take these things for granted. And actually, as, as specific as our work might appear to be in terms of helping young people into the arts or academia, it's the outcome we're interested in. It's not about getting them through the door. It's about getting the citizens at the end of it, the people that are empowered and think and create and reimagine we need more people like that and we need more people doing it for its own sake right you know and getting those people into the arts into academia into whatever whatever area of, of, of study of thinking uh, hopefully changes those institutions well you know should, that's the it? thing isn't it if you don't change the structure there's no point to the work we do and, and we're simply going about it quietly the long term view to say look I mean, to give, to give you an idea, we have not asked anybody to join this network of ours since November 2014. November 2014 is almost two years ago now, and we've added 10 people a week, uh, I guess, maybe more at certain times. We've, we've quadrupled in size, certainly after the election in 2015. There's an idea here that's taken up a lot of momentum, and... I think it's important that we protect the idea, we don't sort of try and cash in, turn it into a £30 million a year charity and all this business. We simply continue as we are, expanding as we can. You know, it's it's difficult. This is a, as much a kind of social movement, not that we've created it, but we seem to have tapped into a shared concern. Right over these issues and I think it's just important for anyone working in those areas to ensure the outcomes are purely social you know and it's the impact of an artist as a citizen it's the impact of an activist or an academic as a citizen but person for me I'm personally interested in that's how I justify uh, no longer working on no sweat which is a sweatshop campaign concerned with global labour got garment workers rights hell of an issue over the last few years we've seen awful things going on in these industries and actually with the 
with the Tory government here, I think people become increasingly solipsistic about their activism, and that's not a criticism. It's like someone came and set fire to our, our back garden, you know, and we're trying to deal with that. And I struggle long and hard personally with, with no longer engaging with, with uh, global workers' rights, or even being a union steward, which again, in my previous jobs I had been. And I think I justify my efforts with Arts Emergency because I know that the people that we're supporting and the next lot of people that are going to push it further. You know, not just Arts Emergency as a thing, not that organisation, but just going to push the struggle a bit further. Right. Not all of them. Some of them are going to get into advertising, some of them are going to get into fashion, and some of them, you know, as they are perfectly entitled to do and at the moment prevented from doing. Right. But on the whole, I, I believe that liberal arts subjects, all the pursuits that we love them, we all wrote shit poetry at 14. You know, many of us still make really shit music in our photos. You know, I include myself amongst them. Yeah, but we all do that. It's a humanising thing. It cultivates empathy, understanding. Really important thing. It greases the wheels, if nothing else, of a humane society. Right. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting thing. I think of that a lot because, uh, you know, doing sort of Spark London that I do, like true storytelling, which is everyday people. Like the, the people who get up on stage aren't artists. They're people. Who, but, but it's an interesting thing, this kind of... I always feel like when I'm talking about the value of having everyday people get up on stage to speak for themselves, I also have to sort of like deal with the weird binary that we set up that's bullshit. Like... It isn't artists and creative people on one Purely side and, and everyday people yeah. on the other side. It's it's all people are artists. All people it's not are artists and audience, mate. Yeah. We live in a democracy. At least we should. For yeah, yeah, democracy yeah. To be effective, we're all the audience and we're all the artists. Right. And all of these subjects and pursuits, because we deal with everything from from abstract economics and philosophy through to performance art, and you know, it really is the entire creative critical spectrum that we've opened up yeah. as an area of pursuit for these young people. It's really, it's, it's, it's the good life. It's, it's the things that make life worth living, that we're ensuring, we're trying to ensure that as many people's weakness fall, get a good chance. They get the space, the space, physical or mental space, that's required to flourish as a person, to have a firm identity yourself without all those horrendous pressures, which, which I faced from a working class background as a young man, that actually incomparable to people that are, that are more oppressed by the hierarchy, more, more dispossessed by current government policy, for them to have that space and that opportunity to explore and just to be taken seriously by serious people, it's just so right. subversive and bloody obvious that I just can't believe it hasn't been going on and it, before. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely, and it's interesting as well, like, a working class man from your, from your background, you know, as you say, doesn't have it as hard as you know, a working class woman or a working class black man or whatever, whatever it is. Um, but it's also like that I think this generation, the young, young people now have it harder than, than the, the, a couple of generations before them. You know, they, things have got worse. Uh, uh, we did better. an event in 2012 with Alan Moore and we went to the Oxford, uh, Oxford Literary Festival. It was the first kind of salubrious event that we got invited to. We had a very nice time. Um, <laughs> But he, I remember him saying with chilling effect, and I can still hear his guttural, rattling voice as he said it, in regards to the financial crisis, where I was working at the Financial Times back offices as a union steward, at the, at the day it crashed, that September day, that it, it all went nuts and people were phoning up thinking they were all responsible. It was a, it was a complete mindfuck, really, um, of a place to be, especially for a left-wing activist who was just working in order to pay rent. And, <laughs> 
but I remembered it and it struck a chord and he said that they will take it all back. There's no reason to assume they won't take it all back. Absolutely. And they have begun taking it all back. They've begun taking it all back probably as of 2010, but not really. I think these issues have gone back years, but in a concerted, more obvious way, they have begun taking it back. Now, you can whatever it, it is, is yeah. up to the individual listening to this right now. But they're taking everything back in many ways. Education, they're changing the... the, the, the they're changing everything in education, let's be honest. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're making it far more utilitarian. Health service, mental health services in communities are decimated. Sure start, aim higher, EMA for young people that need a bit of a, a bit of a safety net. They're going, they're taking it back. Yeah. Alan Moore said that in 2012. And I think that recognising that, recognising that for the young people now, it is a different kettle of fish. You know, for Josie and I had our own challenges. Everyone that signed up to us has had their own challenges, and I think it's more about saying, well, it's on us now. We're all in our 20s and 30s, right. predominantly speaking. Yeah. We've got far older members and, and younger too that have asked to join. It's on us. We're the ones that are going to inherit all this mess, all these problems. We're the ones that are going to be going up against whatever state the country is in, that the world is in, in after Brexit, after the Syrian yeah, conflict all absolutely. of these things they're not things to be ignored anymore they're, and I think that by taking responsibility for where we are recognising our own kind of advantages and privileges without feeling the finger has been pointed at us for having them because it's like well you've done great work around patriarchy and, and this kind of identity politics gets such a bad rep right. from people it's just constantly as if it's not structural like people always say it's not structural but it's absolutely when exactly. it's you know it's absolutely structural and it's eminently frustrating for people engaged in those debates trying a further understanding of such things because by its definition those that, that, that don't recognise it or that those that have it do not take the blind to it of course they are yeah and you know, I just think that in our own little way, we've seen to have nearly four thousand people signed up to go. Yeah, actually, you know, we're not selfish Tories that believe everyone's after everything we've got and we achieved everything ourselves. We right. recognise we're part of something bigger, and all we're doing as Arts Emergency is trying to create a very coordinated way that ensures that those are willing, to, those that are willing to help, can do it in a way that actually does help someone. It does. It's not just uh, lip service. We put these processes around it to make it a machine because we're all very upset about politics we're all very upset about injustice Josie and I and everyone on my board have come from backgrounds and everyone in the network has probably come from backgrounds where we've been concerned about it for many years and done different things about it activism or, or art or whatever but to, to make it a machine takes us out of the equation it means we can't get so upset that we, we collapse in a heap you know and we're weeping and we're unable to face it anymore We've built a machine, so not only does it protect <laughs> me from... It protects my energy, yeah. although, of course, it takes a lot of it at the moment because we're still not fully up, up the slippery slope of being self-sustaining. It protects my energy, so I'm running on practical things. So as much as god-awful stuff is happening out there, and deliberately policy wonks and, and, and spin doctors, to use an old phrase, government arseholes, basically, are pushing <laughs> out policies, think tanks, pushing out policies that are deliberately stoking the hornet's nest they're upsetting people they cause confusion here at Arts Emergency we don't have to expend energy getting upset and angry and arguing with people it's very nice it's a real luxury to be able to just shut the door to that and just get on with something really really practical that has the most wonderful outcome and that is simply creating that space and giving that shield to young people that are 
far less able at the moment to, to deconstruct bad arguments than we are as, as people that are, have been educated. That's not to be patronising, but just these are tools that you pick up. And if people are being denied the opportunity to think critically or engage creatively in a, in a meaningful way, you know, they're doomed. Yeah, we well, all are. I think everyone's doomed, right? Because yeah. it's, it's a two-way street. Like there are people who are not exposed to what we consider critical thinking or whatever things like that but once they are they can also change what critical thinking is because critical thinking itself is 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 created by privileged people but to even at the base level the world, even at the base level yeah just vote in your own interests or something like that you know even at that level yeah just don't be duped and i'm saying that as someone that comes from a background where i have a lot of frustration with my peers that I do feel are somehow do be it into like you kipping or be it into just voting for the Conservatives when you know I've got a family member with, with six kids who voted for the Tories in this election she was on benefits because of her concern over the structural deficit and I just feel that that kind of thing and people would cite Donald Trump in America and that kind of demagoguery you become more vulnerable to it as a society if you start to almost force people to disengage with, right. with broad education. Right. You know, and I think that's really dangerous. And I've been really rangy in my discussion here. That's all right. I think mate. it's just they're big things, you know. And I just three things bug me with the work I do. One is that everyone thinks we're bankrolled by celebrities. Well, I can name the few not, yeah, uh, right, any celebrities bank- that support us support us to the same level as anyone else does because that's all we really want yeah frankly. I mean if you get anything from celebrities it's less money and more that you can you can you can run a, a night with some big names that might get some people well, we don't even do that anymore no right that's all, that's I mean because that like, takes a lot of work that takes a hell of a lot of effort not very much yeah. uh, getting a hell of a lot yeah. of effort I look at it it costs us probably about a thousand pounds for a student's place in the network with the full year of mentoring with all the ongoing engagement that we give in terms of like emailing them checking in on them after the fact to say what are you up to what else can we help you with have you thought about asking us asking our network for something you know and we, we about a grand for that so I look at everything now in blocks of a thousand pounds and I go look that's what it costs me to get proper service manager to manage that person's experience and that manager can hold 50 we've got all the insurance we have to have all the administration it's ruthlessly boring stuff <laughs> it really is it's the absolute bones of it there's no right. posh events and, and fun events are great and I used to do them as an activist to raise money I used to take every penny because we spent zero and give it straight to, to workers groups in whichever area of the world we were working at the time. Right. The earthquake would be a great example of, of, of that where we raised a couple of grand in a pub gig and we did a Bloomsbury gig as well. And, you know, I mean, how that's did, great. How did you end up doing that? Like, do, do it, doing fundraising itself? I mean, how did that come into your life? I don't know, really. My best friend and my brother and myself all started to read a lot of political literature in sort of post-university, at-university kind of thing. We used to spend a lot of time smoking down the football field on our estate, chatting about these, these wonderful concepts and these wonderful historical figures that we were reading about, you know, and it's your traditional <laughs> lefty canon, Kropotkin and Goldman and, and Marx and all that stuff. And we started to read a lot of that and, and obviously over time we begin to, began to start organising stuff and my best friend became involved with a, a branch of the GMB union that was organising um, campaigns to support sweatshop workers that were on strike. 2005 there was a campaign that actually found a sweatshop in East London in Mile End 
and from that point on I was I was hooked on on really just wanting to do something good I don't really know where it came from it just felt that everything I'd read and consumed studied English at university but through that a lot of political literature and um, specific modules on, on political literature it just felt like the right thing to do I think uh, growing up in the 90s you looked around at this sort of bloated cadaver of, of modern culture and it was quite grotesque I, I just felt in my gut that it was quite grotesque consumerism all that stuff that you know, it almost seems so old hand boring to talk about. But it just felt rapid and meaningless and there seemed to be a cavern and I felt that doing good was something that actually it was either do good or embrace nihilism, I think. <laughs> and um, we we all started doing good and, and over yeah. the years over the years we then began to run gigs, began at sort of the AGM where we'd get Mark Thomas or Simon Munnery to come and do a little steam right. and then we said, Well we'll do a night and this is all alongside all direct action campaigns and stuff like that. And I think I just had more of a penchant for organising these events. And I, I got quite good at them. And suddenly, so my best mate Jay is in all the photos. There's, an, there's a pub called The Cross Kings that no longer exists in King's Cross. Yeah. And it was our home for about seven years. It was just so many gigs we ran in there. People like Robin Inks helping us. We had Alexi Sal. It was all very exciting. And Jay's in all the photos. And I'm really jealous because there's only one photo of my shoe. <laughs> it's a fondly rem- remembered pair of shoes to be fair it was, you know, had them for 11 years but that's it my shoe chatting to Stuart Lee and I realised that as that drew to a close and for personal reasons getting a bit older having to work and you know pay rent and all those things and that happens to any activist having to compromise to an extent or again almost double down it's not nihilism but double down on, on that lifestyle or compromise and I compromised and became you know got a proper job and all this business um, I, I got into fundraising for charities because it seemed like the least unpalatable option right. um, I won't say who I worked for in the three years that I did it I did twice get voted one of the top 50 influential fundraisers in the country which was nuts I mean really no idea why it happened or, or what I did to deserve that but we ra- I raised a good £3 million a year for a cause I did not believe in ultimately after right. I saw been beneath the veneer yeah. of this particular organisation <clears throat> I, I actually felt that it wasn't an efficacious use of my time so I yeah I, I ended up doing my own right. um, at a far smaller scale there's no way I could ever raise that for arts emergency because it was all predicated on being a small part of a big system and I wouldn't want us to replicate that practice either of course but yeah that, that was kind of the way I got into it it was just that it's deeply unpalatable to me as an individual to do anything that doesn't feel particularly useful. Right. You know, I just don't, I couldn't, I love to make music, I love to write, and they're very useful things, and if I was to do those, they would also have, you know, but I, how am I going to live whilst doing those? How am I going to live whilst, whilst running an activist campaign? So it's almost a pragmatic thing to say, look, I've got to do something, I've got this set of skills that can really build something useful, so let's build something useful and if it's to be a, a valid lifestyle for me to choose to, to invent something it has to be run in an unprecedentedly correct transparent pragmatic way you know so it's almost like I just set the, the benchmark or I sort of I throw, threw down the gauntlet to myself to say look I'm delighted sitting around very happily calling out bullshit in other people's practice and, and, and you know doing my bit and the struggle and I can sit back and feel very good about myself maybe hitting 30 I could pack it in and, and get a proper job and stuff but um, no I just had to do something useful and I've got a wife who I've been with for nearly 20 years Wow. 
and I just felt like uh, it's not really fair on her. Now I've got a baby too. It's not really fair on, on, on those I have to support, like my, my child. I have to have a uh, I have to play the game within within society in order to yeah, just to more, exist. Yeah, there's like, more you know. people than just you. I mean, that's the yeah. thing. Like, you you can go it on your own uh, and like drop out of society and all of that stuff if you're on your own. Yeah, but if love you... gives you no right now. It takes away your right to self-destruct. Right. And I don't just mean personal love. I think once you for me, once I opened up to, I don't know how to phrase it, but once I recognised a kind of shared humanity, once we basically through supporting workers groups, talking to people out in places I'd never even imagined, never even go to in my life, but talking to people about their experiences made it very real. And it just felt that once you embrace that kind of, you accept that we're all responsible to one another, it's just impossible. I think it was impossible for me to just do anything that was a bit shit you know and I'm not going to point fingers at certain careers but I could have been a stock market analyst I trained as a teacher and I I did quite well in a charity sector there were three options that I had but that I could never stick with I finally found something that I think I've stuck with you have it's eating me alive because it's amazingly intense running something so small but with such a big profile Um, and such like sensitive work on the whole as well you know We're, we're we're not the sort of charity that can put all our service users in the firing line of publicity. Right, um, absolutely. So it becomes, you know, there's a lot of things to balance. Right. Um, but I enjoy that because it is useful. Because as much as I hate admin, and we're, we're moving to a new database solution at the moment. <laughs> we could have made the entire discussion about that if you'd like. Yeah. Um, it's just got to be done. Someone's got to do it. And if you're going to do it properly, you've got to do these boring things. But I get to read the mentoring reports and I get to read the feedback from the students that we've supported. Right. And I don't give myself pat on the back, but I do feel that I've not wasted my time and that's quite enough, you know. And, and I think now my work's at the point where, because we've moved to Margate from Peckham, it's like I'm on a hipster train, like, through <laughs> London. But, so, like, South East London's been my home for my whole life and we've moved to Margate now, which is very similar architecturally to South East London and actually it's a very white working class area full of hipsters so I kind of straddle both groups quite comfortably (laughs) as well but it's a long way from London and now I've got to the point with with my work that I can get the train home a couple of hours get a good I get a good 12 hour day in most days but once I get home I'm off and I'm just doing cuddly things with my daughter or you know which is important my wife or or cooking you know which is very important so personally I think, um, yeah, I'd quite like to just say that I think I've got it to a point now where there's people supporting my work and it's all good. I mean, that's, you know, it's, that's, it's, that's something I always find really quite heartening because we're, we're Facebook friends and so it's, kind, it's quite nice that even though I know you're out there like being eaten alive basically by the piranhas of, uh, yeah. ab- of admin... I know that I, 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 yeah, I they're least, a great band <laughs> right, that would be, yeah. be a rocking band but like, at least I, can, I, I get to see occasionally photos of you you know enjoying being a father and enjoying right, have, yeah. you know, I'm, and you, 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 you know I'm always well, very incredibly important. jealous I mean, of the food you cook as well you cook, <laughs> you cook like d- delicious looking food well I've called off on that because I really right. recognise there's a lot of humble bragging going on <laughs> like, with, with my Facebook feed but it, it was, you know that's a whole different kettle of fish <laughs> it's like people's relationship with social media isn't it it's almost uh, 
much image cultivation and all that stuff. Sure, you have called off on that, but I always yeah. did find it hardening to see that in the midst of all of this stuff I knew was going on, well, it's very uh, you had these man. oasis. How many stuff? activists right. can go on beyond the age of 40 or 50? Right. Full pelt. You can't. Right. You know, there's, there's a huge... And I'm talking about direct action and proper campaigners, of which I'm not one nowadays. So, right. Know, there are people out there that I have so much more respect for that put themselves on the line in a way that I'd frankly be too scared to do, you know, for my personal safety and all the, all the coercion that I have succumbed to from society. Right. But, yeah, I think it is important that you sustain yourself. I've learned that the hard way. I lost my brother in 2011, and I threw myself into this project, you know. I was throwing myself into it before, but I just felt that actually there's a whole generation of people being completely fucked over at the moment. Not in a, not just in a practical way, but in the most fundamental, spiritual, philosophical, existential sense, they're being fucked over because their 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 horizons are being shrunk. You know, and I just felt very defiant at that point in time. I lost my brother at 28. I felt that one of the the, the positives of his life to lose someone so young was education. Our, our shared love of the arts and all that stuff and I just felt that actually you know threw myself into it non-stop for three or four years unpaid for a long period of time then you know on whatever we could do to keep it going and now I've got a normal wage and so I talk about going home and shutting the door it's not like I'm going oh it's lovely right. I just mean I've got to that point through sheer necessity yeah whereby you just cannot you cannot sustain that you need to do it but you need to sort of you need to either be a megalomaniac or a sociopath, or some some element of, you know, some element yeah, of, of yeah. mania is at play when you start something that's ambitious and seemingly quite difficult. But yeah, to sustain it eventually, you just gotta take your foot off the pedal, be smart about it. It's interesting that you kind of utilised that grief situation to, to like give yourself that obsession you know like yeah. the, the obsession I think is a really important factor in getting things done yeah. well again um, it's a choice isn't it yeah. between nihilism and idealism right. they're almost identical you know and between the two is action so you can spend your life being an idealist and not living reality you can spend your life being a nihilist and not living reality and on both counts you can be an artist quite comfortably on either side I just really felt that the only way to counter bad things personally and, and broadly at that time was to do something very positive to counter the injustice that was so obvious that I'd already begun to work on um, and that was just a very important act I think to, to yeah. do that um, it's like it's defiance isn't it almost but not in a Hamlet sense just in a sort of fuck them they're, 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 they're so awful and I, them is a very, again a very broad term right. but you know there's something positive we can do and that at the end of the day for anyone life is short life should be enjoyed everyone's got a right to enjoy that life and I believe part of enjoy, enjoying life is not just having fun luxury pursuits and stuff it's actually living that life you know building that life labour not labourers in Corbyn, labour. Right. Labour, not work. And, and I just felt that from my background, personally, very strongly, that I was basically getting trained to kind of do something quite limited. I couldn't be more specific about that, but when I look back and when I sort of reassess my experiences in education, it just felt like, yeah, you kind of... The, the, there was a very low ceiling in terms of what I felt I could achieve not just in terms of imposed but just culturally as well my, my peers and my family I mean 
bless her, my parents' greatest aspiration for me was to get into health and safety inspection <laughs> because it was a solid job. Yeah. And, you know, it was a, you know that oh, yeah. was, that I mean, was I their aspiration. My, my my partner's dad does that, and it's it's done him well. Uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, that's like it's kind of humble, but also quite limiting. If perhaps your calling is to be, I don't know, the next. Paul McCartney that's a terrible example <laughs> the next you know the next Lou Reed or something there's nothing I mean I don't think the next, the next the next you know he's I mean, fine he, he if was he wants to donate he's right. more than welcome to get in and touch he, and, he, and if there's anybody who's got a lot of privilege to uh, instrument in terms of giving back it's him uh, so he, he right, definitely yeah. should but you know what I mean it's like um, yeah I don't know it's hard work and there's lots to think about if you're doing anything worthwhile it's always terribly difficult to give any exposition on, on the whole thing and to kind of look at the whole thing as a, and I guess, as a picture. I mean, I guess it's like as, as much as like one of the things that's motivated you is, 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 is the loss of your brother, another thing that must motivate you is the, the birth of your daughter, right? Those, the, yeah. the, the, that's a kind of a thing to, to, well, it to does strike make me. you care about the future a bit more. It does strike me I that um, well, the, the creation of Arts Emergency has been so entwined with such huge upheaval both positive and negative in my personal life and I do think that um, I don't quite know at this moment in time how they're entwined or how one drove the other but certainly when I lost my brother I, I, it was it was not so much inspiration some heroic desire it was right. more it was more like sink or swim it was like you know I've started to do this there's no way now I already struggled with with disliking my work my day job and feeling it wasn't particularly effective or worthwhile um, so it really was well I've, again I either do this worthwhile thing or a worthwhile thing that I believe in and sacrifice everything or I go back to that and effectively die as well you know it, it wouldn't have been good for my mental health to have gone back into something that was so constrained and uninspiring yeah. so it was it was partly selfish and partly self-sustaining uh, when when Isabel was born, I mean, it's, it's, I'm not one to romanticise having children. You know, like when people have children, and some people choose not to, and some people yeah. it's all they care about. And people go, oh, but you don't know till you have them. You don't know, do you? It's like no, it was an amazing thing. Um, I love her to bits, as you can imagine. She's adorable, but I uh, I don't know that it changed anything. It certainly it made my work with Arts Emergency more difficult, purely because suddenly. I did have a mouth to feed. My wife's a writer and editor, and, and frankly, could look after me <laughs> if, I, if I, you know, if I, if I, you know, dissolved into a pile of, of sort of vague angst and, and, and inactivity. But when you've got, an, you know, it, it gave it, it brought more responsibility, mm. I think. Yeah. And that's something that, um, as I've gone into my thirties, I've seen to have taken on shitloads of responsibility. Having a baby was just another, in that sense, was another heap of responsibility. Um, that I did not expect to have, yeah, as was running a bloody charity and having right. all these other young people with with a safeguarding responsibility and, and all kinds of, you know, it's. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's. I think what it's done is when I talk about going home and shutting off, it's allowed me to preserve myself a bit more in right. terms of my work. You know, it's yeah. a bit more like I'm not going to just sit there working all day. Right. Going home and working on my phone at night, right? And because tweeting at midnight you've got other things watching that are more important time. right there in front of you. Yeah, that kind of just super exactly. That. Yeah, and actually, it is self-preservation. I think is something that she's implicitly encouraged me to, to think about a bit more because I didn't really for, for three or four years. It, well, you can imagine trying to start something, especially something with an audience like that which we have, which is 
largely very privileged people that are empowered to, to challenge and, and maybe feel entitled at times. Very difficult audience to, to build and keep engaged. It's ridiculous. I, I, Frank, well, you get my newsletters. I do. <laughs> I am almost like some sort of Stalin-esque figure. I have to issue these extremely impassioned and fulsome kind of notifications of what right. we're doing because obviously the reality of what we're doing is kind of dull um, in the day-to-day sense. The uh, the bigger picture of what we're doing is, is full of voting ambition and, and, you know, hopefully a transcendent value system that, that encourages others to copy what we do in a different sphere or to join us, you know. And that's quite a lot. That's the only way I feel that I can engage with nearly 4,000 people who generally are smarter than me, more talented than me and um, better connected than me because by virtue of the fact that they're useful to our students they have to be right um, so yeah I think it's uh, I don't know it's a funny old life really it's, 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 it's funny as well like when you talk about like how you've taken on so many responsibilities and, and that's that's you know, that's clear that you have yeah. uh, in every kind of responsibility you seem to have like that you're, you're dealing with and you're having at the moment it's like when I, whenever I meet you, I, you always like it. Always strikes me that you're not naturally someone drawn to responsibility. It's kind of like you've got all the, these responsibilities, yeah. but you've all, you know to talk to. You're a very kind of like you know you know relaxed in some in, in, in many ways. I'm not saying that your life is relaxed around that, but you're no, like you know, I'm very not much always relaxed like, at home. I do get quite sure. stressed. You can imagine. I bet um, things like migrating a database, right? Or uh, one and a one and a half year old having chicken pox. Right, right. Oh, I'm not particularly relaxed about those no, things. No, but that's um, it. But I, mean, I, I mean, generally, you have. To, I, I suppose I just have to maintain a distance because it all gets done, and I don't do it all. I'm not. Don't do it all on my own anymore. I've got a, a you know a board of trustees who came together largely self-referring in my orbit as we set this up. So it's a very nascent structure we've got, but they're all terrifying they're all brains on sticks you know like genuinely good and I've got excellent colleagues now there's people in the network like you and loads of others that I could name hundreds in fact that would do anything they could to help us along so it's not like I take I bear it all on my, my own I just yeah I mean at the end of the day there's no point getting too uptight about it is there no it's um I do take it terribly seriously what I do but I think I just have to temper that with a certain humour or detachment and deal with one thing at a time, you know? But, but I think it's healthy as well. Like, I, I always think, you know, in terms of when you think of, like, leaders, government or whatever, anyone who wants the job probably shouldn't have it. That's because like, they're dicks, ex- isn't it? Well, exactly. And, like, what I think is, like, what I think with you is you're not someone who's, like, naturally necessarily predisposed to grabbing, taking responsibility, but you have have taken it anyway, right? And you've I suppose like, I just felt outraged. It wasn't that... Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, I felt outraged. Uh, the injustices just it was that gut feeling yeah. I referred to so I think it's all been driven by outrage yeah, and I'm out, so outraged that so you've had to that no one else yeah, yeah. has done this yeah, yeah. that I've done it with a certain detachment of just disbelief <laughs> I'm constantly surprised that no fucking far more qualified person should there be one it's terrifying <laughs> to think there might not be one frankly but well connected some rich person has not gone off because that's the thing with charities right we're a charity because we support young people not because we wanted to be a charity this began as a you know as an idea for a movement and a, an activist campaign which then became a service referring to that preservation that I talked about you know yeah. that machine elements so it became a service that directly helped people um, but most charities have started from a 
a much softer, fuzzier place nowadays in this area of work where we are, arts and education. And I'm not naming names, I don't, I could. Yeah. But they're a bit fun, aren't they? <laughs> they're a bit fun and it's all jolly and it's all let's all get together and have a do. And, and the work might be good and, and, and everything, but just the, the overall ethos is not fire and brimstone fucking socialism. <laughs> and I can't help but bring that to it. Neither can Josie even. Nowadays. Right. You know, she's, she's sacrificed a lot herself to be outspoken in the way she has. Absolutely, she has, yeah. You know, we've both kind of. We do both look at one another occasionally and just go, Jesus Christ, what have we done? Yeah. <laughs> and I always tell her, don't worry, it's going to be okay in five, five years' time or so, everyone's going to respect you for not selling out and, and you know, not sort of playing the game in order to, to, to do the, the usual thing. And hopefully I'll be in a position where I can just get pickled in a think tank on a hundred grand a year and fuck off to Barbados <laughs> or something, who knows? And we kind of kid ourselves that and eventually it's all going to, we're going to win and we're going to get to relax and, and that. But... Uh, yeah, I think we're just a different kettle of fish as an organisation. And it's my job more than anything just to keep that going. Not limit it to my own capabilities and also not sell it out to the, the highest bidder because we've never gone out seeking huge amounts of money. We are beginning to look into that simply because I've got an extra 35 grand to raise this year because we need an extra member of staff and a half. Right. So we've got a Manchester pilot, we're right. trying to double intake down in London, where actually, in terms of capacity, we're like 20% higher than we were last year with 60, 70 pairs. Um, they're big thing, you know, we're driving it forward because there's a need for it. Um, well, so and it yeah, and it's important to, to make arts emergency not something that's just in London. Like that, and that's something exactly. I really respect about The demand I get from going, around the country, yeah. you should see my inbox. Right. People from Derby, Birmingham, Manchester, obviously, we're now active. Newcastle, Edinburgh, and Glasgow, and, and Dundee, we've had emails from America and France and Japan and Sweden. People all over the world are getting in touch, going, Well, come and do it here. Why aren't you doing it here? And each time you have to reply, otherwise, it's not respectful. Reply in detail to the individual to say, This is an actual service for young people that's carefully managed. We've got outcomes that we try and achieve for them as they go along and it's all about giving them space and an organic experience and all this stuff and it can't be scaled up quickly we could if someone gave us a load of money but of course if we had a load of money it would then change it probably change fundamentally areas of that work it might just it might mean that we have to focus on a particular group of people whereas at the moment we have eligibility criteria that takes account of, of a very wide spectrum of people, right. from white working class people to middle class white people to BAME, BAME young people with, with no advantage and those with. And we try our best to just be open to anyone that is able to benefit from what we're doing and to have a nice body of research as to why we're supporting them so we can say to you, as a member of the network, this person's part of it because, look, they might have a low income. You might look at them and they seem well-spoken and connected and all this stuff. You might assume they're middle class on the up but actually no look we've made sure they're the right right sort of thing and then you can kind of change you can blow in the wind of, of philanthropic proclivities if you start to take too much money from big institutions yeah um, but we're trying to strike the balance I mean I've got 35 grand extra to raise and that ain't just going to appear itself and frankly there aren't very many rich men and they're after men that would, would front that kind of donation because those that can give that would be on side don't necessarily realise they could afford to give that not in one lump but you know it's difficult to ask wealthier people for money um, yeah it just is because uh, you know that's why they're wealthy and we don't want to start I don't want to make part of my job pandering to 
to vanity or, or guilt, you know, of people that, that are able to do that. I'd much rather just build it in line with with the way the donor base grows. Right. We're going to try loads of different ways to to sort of bridge that gap because we've had 4,000 people join up but 800 in total have donated and it's just it leaves us about about halfway to where we need to be which is fine it's perfectly healthy it's just what I've got now is 4,000 volunteers some of whom are going I'm still waiting for a young person I ordered a young person to help right. six months ago and it's like <laughs> okay but please understand this right. is not a fly-by-night operation you know this is something that right, is, because, is I mean, properly researched and, and, and managed and and part of that, yeah, sure, part of that is slightly kind of like the entitlement of just of, of, of just being a, a human being at this time of, of life and, and thinking that things are just But also wanting easy. to help. But exactly. It's, it's the other part of it is absolutely the desire that. to help right, people. They've signed up because yeah. they want to help people. And again, and I'm, I'm sat there so, surprised right? and outraged right. that no one else is either backing us, people aren't knocking on our door, that, could, that back things. I mean, we run on less than an MP's yearly average salary. And we're doing a lot of good work right across the country now I, I do find it amazing in the same way that no one started this that no one you know a Grace and Perry who will be aware of our work isn't getting in touch to go oh do you know what I'll fund you for three years and this is what yeah you know and I, mean, I do I, find I, that amazing I that like keeps Grace me and going. Perry but I would like him even more if he was funding Arts Emergency well, with, you know, with not how to, well not he's to doing. point a finger at him alone. yeah sure There's plenty sure. but you know, I'm always happy to point fingers at people. <laughs> it's more just people amazing. who make TV shows that like uh, hit a national uh, thing well, around yeah, the same subject yeah. that I was working at. And again, uh, I get lots of people emailing me to go, "Have you asked so and so to give you money?" So, <laughs> I've tried, but his PA would not let us anywhere near him. Um, yeah, but you know, I, it's that kind of surprise and outrage that people don't do it that keeps me going. Sure, because I and, go, "Well, do you know what? They bloody well will eventually, and if not, we're going to do it ourselves, and, and we are doing it ourselves." And you know, to, to make it clear to to, to listeners, I, I do really respect what uh, Grace and Perry's TV show does. In fact, I think it's really important. And uh, mm. the, the, the slight bitterness you well, heard it's in my tone, bang in your is, area, yeah, 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 yeah exactly. He hasn't phoned you up, <laughs> frankly. Well, no, but I mean, it was great to see him making it make pop. You know, I, I, I think. His show is really important because it can reach people who I think my show can't. I think his show's more broad, and I think that's a really good thing. Um, but anyway, uh, well, that's to, public discourse, isn't it? That's, absolutely, that's a completely different thing to whether or not he wants to to whether he wants support to support us. Us. Um, It's a shame, but there's millions like that out there. And, and ironically, again, I don't want to be in a position where I have to ask someone like that to fund it. Yeah, I want to be funded democratically by by all of our members. Got all my staff donate. Even yeah. the students at right. mate, that is the way to do it because that keeps us fresh and relevant. And, yeah, you know, it's I mean, just you don't unprecedented. Even, and you don't need much to be able to donate. I mean, the, the reason that I had to stop donating is because I can't guarantee the money will be there, and I don't, I can't, you know, I want to donate, but I don't want to pay my bank money every well, yeah. month because I get charged over oh, fees. Man, yeah, but, I but, give someone a quid a month, but, and but I have if, no money, and it, I got twenty-five right. quid three times. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's the thing. So, but but if you're someone with a salary and you're listening to this, you can absolutely d- donate a tiny amount of money every month, and that will help. Right? And that's all we want because when we go to someone like Grace and Perry, sorry, Grace, <laughs> to, to make you the example here, right? But someone like that, I don't want to be going, going. Oh, can you give us ten thousand pounds a year because we want to support this many students? And you know, I don't want. I want to go and say, can you please set up paid internships with your studio? Can you please leverage your influence with with the University of Arts in his case or the Royal Academy? to get paid placements for young people that right. we can vouch will need and benefit from it and are eligible to get special support in this respect because they're 
completely dispossessed at this moment in time. That's what I want to go to people like that for. And that's which the thing is that why it's difficult at the moment to grow, to get big enough so we're actually offering a service that feels like we're meeting the potential of what we've built. Yeah. And also, you know, not have to muddy the waters with these guys that could could literally, you know, imagine what they can do for a group of young people. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing that people don't always know about the arts or the media or whatever is that it, the, the, the only way into those those institutions often is to do unpaid internships. And the thing is, if you're from a working class background or a background that hasn't got any money for whatever reason, you can't do unpaid internships, which means that the only people who get into the arts and the media are people who can afford to. Yeah. And that is... And what you end up with in these industries is something even more insidious or as insidious is that things like diversity and access become corporate responsibility or charitable activities. They're no, we talked about structures earlier. The way they seek to address these issues are not structural. On the whole, they are supplementary and they're driven from an ethical basis. Not, they don't, you know, there's a publisher who I will not name, big one offered us a certain amount of money to run a, a kind of publishing workshop around the country and it was all under the uh, under the, 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 the guidance of corporate responsibility, not editorial. So what is the value in that from an, the absolute starting point? Right. If you're doing it because you think it's charity to let someone that's black or has low income or has a physical or mental health issue come and participate in what you do and it's right. an act of charity... Where's the value in that? Yeah, they need to understand that there's a value for them in having people from those backgrounds. It's called society. Exactly. It's called society. Just reflect it. Just, you know. Yeah. You know, that's one of our, obviously one of our hot points with what we do. But, um... I mean, it, 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 the thing, that's the thing that always gets me, that from the arts point of view, there's, there's absolutely, like, I, I hate capitalism, but there's a capitalist argument for getting people to, oh, to, to reflect society. Don't get society. started on that. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, like, it's, it's yeah, so weird to me that so. against their own interests, they don't want to reflect society, because, you know, just purely from an artistic point of view, aesthetically, voices that are less heard are more original, therefore interesting. Like, I don't understand, like, as a, as a creator, I don't understand why why people don't want to hear more voices. Like, but that's again, why, as an audience arts, member, I do. The so. arts in capitalism almost exist to reaffirm assume place and assume, you know, yeah, absolutely. type, trope. You know, it's like if you talk to a black actor, we had a couple of young men on our podcast a couple of months ago that said, look, we only get roles, hoodie number two. And, right, absolutely. You know, and, and white working class actors, there's a, there's a guy on actor awareness who I've spoken to, who again says, you know, it's always we have to play football really good. Right. Typecasting, and it reaffirms that under, under the capitalist system. Right. And to justify the arts in that system just completely undermines everything but that's the thing I mean it's not just about the actors on the screen it's about the writers and the directors yeah. and getting those kind of those kind of decisions made by people uh, from different backgrounds than the all those people that, that do all those jobs you refer to so say a record label there's a big indie label that we went to we did a bit of work with not necessarily going back anytime soon because we're so busy <laughs> um, but we went into their head office it was very snazzy there's all gold records on the wall and lovely big wooden chunky furniture you know a typical place and um, everyone there doing marketing advertising social media analysis legal everyone there seemed to have also a very strong sideline in making music and that was their entry point they made music because they had the cultural capital and privilege to also get the, the necessary skills or whatever to do these other jobs they've got a great life now they work at a big indie label needless to say it was not a very diverse 
office right. and that was you know so even if we we wouldn't make that argument about you know diversity or access or social justice in the arts is important because it makes it gives you a better product it does give you a better society right you know when people aren't othered and people don't have assumptions and they, they get into each other's heads and understand one another and humanize one another right and you can do a boring job in an office and still be an artist and I think that I think the biggest issue we find for our young people is they have this arbitrary divide now you know between well it's impossible to go to university and take this seriously so and it takes a lot of effort on our part and my staff and, and my trustees and members that come and meet with students because we meet everyone one-to-one -one before they get a mentor so they know we respect them value them and they're on an equal footing and they can see us and hear, hear my glottal stuff and Josie swearing and so on and so <laughs> forth you know then we're not a big institution for and the, the, it takes an effort on our part just to get them to actually talk about what they like doing outside of college right and it's always what they like doing outside of college that, that quite often leads to yeah, what they a love, good match right? what, what they're they, passionate exactly about. because like, we're in a setting uh, there's a complete divide between oh, oh I love social media and write oh I love writing and there was one young lady who did self-portraits as a hobby they were amazing I won't name her, but I think she's going to be really, she's really going to make something of herself doing, doing art as her primary kind of thing. They were amazing. She showed us on her phone, but it came at the end of a 25-minute discussion, and it was an aside at the end where she just mentioned that she loved doing it, and now she's paired with an artist and obviously wow. taken that seriously. But such is the, the situation in schools that's not even on the agenda. It's not even part of the lexicon anymore you know to do that stuff is completely separate from your educational experience your, your life your adult life but really it's what education boils down to isn't it is what you'll do as an adult and where you'll end up and that's really insidious you know and, and to get back to the original point about justifying arts on economic market share grounds, yeah i mean i wouldn't you know it's dangerous yeah and it is because it's the <laughs> weapon of the enemy because these things do have a value in and of themselves in the yeah. exact same way that human love as a value, right. isn't it? You know, these are implicit things um, that we all we all do and engage with, and, and it's just it's so. Uh, one thing to round off what we've been talking about. I talked about absorbing networks, you know, and, and absorbing the privilege of other people in order to kind of diffuse it to a wider audience of people, and that all came from a discussion with Jake Chapman, the artist, at really early days, uh, really really early days, sort of 2011 spring 2011 so before it even really was an, uh, an apple in my eye is that a thing <laughs> a twinkle in my eye my yeah. social justice eye and we, we're talking about capitalism because to get this geezer to listen to me we had to have an hour and a half two hour long discussion about Nietzschean politics and stuff like that first of all because I think he was sussing out they obviously get a lot of people coming with ideas and stuff yeah and um, I passed that test and then we began to talk about it. And the biggest thing we came up with was how capitalism is an idea. Probably true of any system of thought, but it absorbs everything, you know, because it does. It yeah. looks for the value in everything. Yeah, yeah. And just like what Alan Moore said, just like things I've read, I haven't even spoken about Kurt Vonnegut's book. That was a huge thing for me in terms of realising how we could configure what we're doing. Um, but I, I realised, yeah, we, we'll, we'll set out to absorb everything as well. You know, we'll look to absorb as we say people's privilege and, and it is to try and just as we copy the benefits a, a Bullingdon Club member might have as best we can minus the money just to reiterate <laughs> that you know that is their yeah. one biggest overriding advantage 
ever yeah. is the fact they have a safety have, net that yeah. is unprecedented yeah. and in, in, irreplaceable. We look to absorb all of their privileges and everyone's goodwill and make sure that, and it's our job to not only just absorb that, right, it's our job to turn it into something really useful and to actually, at the end of the day, pass it on to someone. So it's all, yeah, it's very difficult to, to create what is essentially a social machine, Yeah, you know, because it really has to be. There's no yeah. other way we can understand what we're doing because we get so embroiled case by case, young person and adult mentor by, per pair, you know? Yeah. It's so easy. You could spend all year just supporting one young person. Right. Because we're trying to encourage right, every yeah. diverse interest they have and, and tackle every challenge as best we can using the network. So we have to treat it as a machine. It is very complicated. And yeah, along the way, I've spoken to all sorts of interesting people. I spoke to a NASA rocket scientist. I've spoken to the guy that designed all of the Guardian networks. You know, now they've got that lovely way of like not paying journalists on, on permanent contracts by putting them on the network instead of the paper. Yes. Um, we've spoken to, yeah, just so many interesting people along the way. Diverse, interesting, engaged people that care about it. They're not even necessarily artists. And I think I know full well now how complicated it is. So if I talk easily about the responsibility, it's because we're kind of doing something impossible. So if we fail, it's not like, you know, it, it, the odds are we should fail in what we're attempting to do. It should have failed a long time ago. So we can kind of be a bit like relaxed about, well, it's working. As long as we keep ourselves doing everything properly and due diligence and checks and balances, all these words that the Conservative government love to use, yeah. you know, being clear. Um, as long as we are like totally pragmatic about what we do and we constantly believe in it and I'm lucky enough to find new colleagues and new members and volunteers and new young people and teachers that get it, we're okay. Because it should have failed along, it should never have got off the ground. It's such a ridiculous proposition, <laughs> you know, to try and break into and recreate these networks of privilege that are hundreds of years old. But we are doing it and it's very satisfying to do it and it's frustrating that we don't get to do it more quickly I think it's yeah that's my one thing I'd change is, is I'd do it a lot more quickly but yeah but that's a very hard thing to, well, exactly. to, to make happen yeah. but yeah no I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased that you're doing this impossible thing and uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you about yeah, it today I'm quite glad that uh, over time the, uh, the, the the background the, you know, quiet, it, it, it was kind of like it's kind of like you know we, we, they, the, we were all. They were, it's like the room was trying to drown us out with voices, which is probably how you feel as arts <laughs> emergency uh, quite often. Well, is that the world is, is trying our, to drown you out. And Twitter then, is our main platform. Right. But then, as we've much. gone on, they've all given up. And I think that hopefully that's what that's a model that will happen around arts emergency. Uh, the last thing I ask all my uh, guests, uh, the last question I ask all my guests is, do you have anything to plug? Which I think we've been plugging arts emergency, but how can people help? How can they find it? All of that stuff. God, um, well, uh, go to arts-emergency.org, have a read, and um, click on the donate button or the join button. It's pretty much that simple. Yeah. Joining doesn't involve much. You're going to be a member. Um, we'd like it if you could donate monthly as part of that. Um, but you'll be a member, and you're effectively on a mailing list, and we'll open up mentor training. You can refer yourself as a mentor when you feel like you can do it. Um, you can get requests from students that if you can help, you just reply. Yeah. And we do the rest. You know, my, my colleagues will sort of filter that out and find the most useful ones and put you in touch with a young person's mentor. The requests can be of any, any nature. 
Uh, so you don't need to be some super duper high flying professional. Right. Um, you know, you just need to be normal like us and happy to help. Uh, that's about it, really. And we might send you a badge eventually if you donate <laughs> as well. But that's a hell of a. Yeah, we're a bit behind on those, but they are coming. Uh, if anyone's listening. <laughs> Brilliant. And the last thing I ask all my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye. Thank you for your time. (laughs) Bye, everyone. I'm very excited that I'm able to fully officially announce that the Family Tree podcast is on its way. It's a spin-off from Getting Better Acquainted and features me as its host. And it's coming out in September 2016. It's a mystery show, it's a fictional show, or is it? And it's really, really exciting. Find out more about it at thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk but also you can subscribe to it on iTunes already. There's two teasers. There's a Patreon account where you can sign up to support The Family Tree to help us to get the money to pay ourselves and our performers properly. So please do go over and sign up to that Patreon now if you want, or you can wait until the show starts coming out before you make that decision. And if you want to support what I do, but you don't want to support projects that aren't in existence quite yet, you can help me to make Getting Better Acquainted by donating to this show. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm GooseFat101. To find out about my masculinity show, that's the most recent stand-up tragedy podcast. You can listen to the whole show in its entirety, and you can also find out more about it at www.mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Facebook and on Twitter. It's at GBA Podcast. Thanks very much for listening, and remember... There are lots of ways to get better acquainted. In January 2016, I discovered a mystery and decided to make a podcast about it. It's coming out in September and it's called The Family Tree. The body that's been found now must be a a previous version of him, like a younger version of him from, uh, from earlier, from before the car crash. The guy had lost an arm but apparently he had two arms when I buried him. Whether the body that we buried right now is him or not, he is dead. Maybe there's a sort of a younger version of him from an older time stream that's then somehow been sort of extracted to now and something's gone wrong and now that, that one's died and we, what we've got is two time streams crossing over. That's a, that's a possible one. What is the big question? Like, did the arm grow back or is that a red herring? Were there two bodies? Was there was there two marks? There's loads of reasons why that might not be a body, like you might fall in the tank. If there's lies within your family, wouldn't it be worth finding out what those things are? You might have been, like, killed and buried by someone. I don't 100% know that you're telling the truth. You can't really 100% know anybody is telling the truth. You seem to be. How can you get an arm back? I know you don't mean it like this, but the question's almost offensive. He's got two dads, essentially. And yet... The facts don't match. You know, he was talking about body replacement, he was talking about all sorts of weird stuff coming down. If you were asking me for answers, I don't have answers at this point. Mm. I have I have ideas. I think it's really easy to romanticise when someone's not around anymore, and I don't want to do that. He wouldn't have disappeared if he hadn't died. There are things that are in some ways beyond our understanding, I think, and are nevertheless true. There is a path that one can find through the information which which allows one to make sense. If you want to find out more about The Family Tree, go to thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk.
www.ghostsofthecoast.co.uk. I wish I had an explanation that made sense. Sure. It would help me, it would help my children. Yeah.